Good afternoon. And so, um, yes, what questions do we have to deal with? I think we still have a number. You had questions yesterday. All gone now. It's going to take some time. I think um, Scott wanted to know about non self. Yeah. <coughs> That's true. Yeah. Well, <coughs> we can, yes, let's talk about that. The basically how you go about having a realization that the self uh, that you normally perceive and cling to is an illusion is by looking for it and not finding it. The, the way that you would go about uh, discovering that there's no pink elephants here on this property is by looking for them and not finding any, right? But of course, uh, you need to look in those places that you... Uh, where you would most expect to find them. And there's a certain point where uh, as a result of the process of looking that you achieve a certain certainty that indeed you looked everywhere that you would have expected to find something and you find that it's still not there. And that is uh, what you might say the first level of realization of not-self. So, last night I, I talked about that in order to have a, a, a clear, uh, to achieve these insights and to have a clear Perception of insight into the into any of the three characteristics. Um, you you needed to be coming from the right view. You, you needed to have the right view, which is to recognize that uh, your experience uh, consists of a series. The, the totality of your existence consists of a series of conscious experiences. Um, and let me just explain that there are those periods you, you might wonder about, well, what about when you're in deep sleep? 
or what about when you're in uh, anesthesia? Um, if we're looking at this from the viewpoint of what you actually know through direct experience, you might you might uh, have had anesthesia at some point, and there was a period where there was no experience, and then there there was a coming back into normal consciousness. So that's really all that you need to be concerned about. You don't need to be concerned about with what happened in between. When we look at deep sleep, we actually find that there is a certain awareness that is present even there. So we can, you, you can, I think, understand and accept that the entirety of your existence consists of a sequence of conscious experiences following one after another. And then the guidance that the Buddha gave us was that as an individual, what is present in each of those experiences are the five aggregates, or the five, the five skandhas. So it is those which we examine looking for uh, the self. We examine sensations, the experience of sensations very, very closely. And we examine them in order to discover a number of different things about them. But in particular, uh, with regard to no self, we examine sensations to see if there is any self in the sensations. And this is something that you need to satisfy yourself about. Uh, that when you are seeing, there is only the seeing. And when you are hearing, there is only the hearing. And when you are thinking, there is only the thinking. And this is something that becomes obvious as you, as you examine mindfully. Is that indeed this is the case. There is no... There, there is no separate entity uh, involved. There is no seer in addition to the seeing. And there's no thinker in addition to the thinking. We can look at our perceptions and we can see how perception arises uh, in reaction to sensory experience. We we have perceptions, but uh, we see that there is no necessity for a separate and distinct perceiver in that. The perceptions take place. Likewise in the feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness, even though, as I mentioned before, this is where we are most likely to find that sense of self, when we look at the pain itself, it's just like uh, other sensations. It's just another sensation. 
when we look at the mental uh, the mental forms of suffering and uh, happiness, we see that that's what they are. They are they are states of suffering or happiness. They're mental objects, and that when we look closely, we don't see any self in that. So it's a process of examining these things and satisfying ourselves gradually through consistently looking for it. Uh, and whenever you think you may have discovered a self, a self-nature in this, then that's wonderful. Continue to investigate that. Continue to investigate that and, and see where it takes you. Now the other part of this is to examine the sense of self that we have whenever it arises. The same thing in mind, that, aha, this is where I'm going to find it. So, uh, when you have a strong sense of self that arises because, uh, for example, you feel insulted, You have the strong sensation uh, of self. It's very important to examine that. And you can even, you, you don't have to wait until somebody actually says something. You can, you can in, in meditation, you can uh, imagine being insulted or you can remember being insulted to bring that to mind so that you can examine it and say, okay, where in this is the actual self. This is, this is a very good practice. You can do this with all the circumstances in which there uh, is the ordinary awareness of a sense of self. And so in investigate them to see whether, whether or not indeed uh, you can locate a self in this. One of the things that will happen with even your initial investigation is that you find there are many experiences where there is, there's obviously no self present. There's no awareness of the self. And immediately this tells you that one of the attributes that we have always imagined there was to ourself is that it was always present. And so even though we still have a sense of self, we know for certainty that, that one thing about it is it's not always present. And so then we look at these other times when we have an experience of self to see if we can penetrate in them, uh, into them and actually detect a, a self or a soul. But then we go back to this other idea of The, the idea of a continuity, the idea of something that's always there. And part of our sense of self involves this continuity, that even though uh, we know that the body that we had 20 years ago is obviously very different, 
and the mind that we had 20 years ago was obviously different. We do have this sense uh, that it is the same self there. So we need to investigate that and find out what is the basis of that. And what is the validity of that? And you need to do this yourself. You need to satisfy through your, uh, your, through your own investigation. But what you will discover is that there is indeed a causality. You know, there, there, is, there is a causal connection that links all, all of these different moments of experience together. And if you can see that here I am now, this is one moment of experience, I have these sensations, the sound of the airplane, seeing you, the feeling of my body, uh, the vagueness of pleasant and unpleasant and the mental formations and everything else that are there. And this is constantly changing. The sound of the airplane is fading away. I'm looking first at one person. There's this image. As soon as my eyes move, there's a completely different image. Uh, the the vagueness of, of, of pleasant and unpleasant or neutral are constantly shifting as as whatever it is that uh, I'm taking as object changes. There's a perception associated with each one of these. There is no airplane in that sound. That's just a perception. Where does that come from? Mental formations, a particular mental formation called forward by the presence of the sound. I can see all of these things in the sequence of arising and passing away. And I can recognize a, a causality in all of this. There's a causal process. And one experience flows into another and there, there is a very distinct causal connection but uh, uh, an intention arises in this moment that causes the movement of my head or my eyes and so there's this very immediate causal connection between the, that's linking these experiences but there's also the ones that span over a long distance uh, long, long periods of time like the mental formation that uh, uh, arose as a result of the sound of that airplane. Uh, its causes lay somewhere far in the past. And the information and ideas that I'm calling forward in order to talk to you right now, these have existed in my mind uh, for some time. We're developed over time, but uh, they are causally connected to uh, my mind producing the, uh, the ideas and generating the words that you're hearing in this moment. There is this continuous causal connection. It's a very, it's a very uh, integrated and interrelated and interwoven, many different strands of causality continuously interwoven. Not so densely interwoven, though, that we can't decipher them at least clearly enough to understand the process that's taking place. Don't have to don't have to unravel it 100%. It's way too complex for that. Just need to unravel it enough to see that it is the same 
interweaving of causal strands that is responsible for the continuity and all the different aspects of experience as it unfolds over time. So that in its simplest form, it's like uh, you take an axe and it has a wooden handle and it has an iron head. Now, through time, the handle becomes worn and broken and so it's replaced with a new handle. But we still think of it as the same axe. And then may go through several handles, but then at some point the edge of the axe becomes so chipped and worn and it's been resharpened so many times that it's time to put a new axe head on the handle. And so it's still the same axe, it just has a new head. And so this goes on and on. And uh, so yes, there's still the same axe, just the same way that there's still the same you self that you perceive. There is this causal connection that runs through everything. There is one other thread of consistency that you will find. And that is that is the thread of consciousness. That all of these experiences, the only ones that you have access to, the only ones that carry any significance are the ones that are associated with Consciousness, and we see this thread of consciousness. And so, in the process of searching for selflessness, if you if you carry out the investigation very carefully and very diligently, you will become quite satisfied that there is no self in any of these other things. That, as we've said, the mental. Uh, uh, personality construct that's capable of becoming insulted or inflated when praised or so forth, we will come to see clearly for the nature of, of what it is and we'll be unable to identify any abiding entity that we can identify as self in that. And even the sense of self that arises uh, in association with many of our experiences, it will become clear to us that this is really indistinguishable in its nature from any of the other types of mental objects and any of the other types of feelings that the mind generates. And so that we can see that it too is a temporary conditioned uh, mind-created uh, phenomenon that sometimes arises and at other times does not, and that there's no distinct and persistent entity in that that we can label as self. So we will gravitate towards the idea that, well, it's this consciousness, this consciousness, this consciousness must be the self. It becomes. Uh, with almost certainty, it will it will come down to the point where this is your last best candidate. <laughs> okay.
If there's a self, it's consciousness itself. And so then, the examination of consciousness must be done very carefully, but you are conscious of mental objects and you're conscious of sense objects. And there's eye consciousness and there's ear consciousness and there is mind consciousness and they're very different from each other. The consciousness associated with saying, eye consciousness, is very different than ear consciousness. And if you examine that, you can satisfy yourself with that case. One thing I want to point out, when in all of this, I should have probably said this at the beginning, when I say investigate, some of this is, is thinking, but most of it, most of it is something that you do. Practicing mindful awareness, either in sitting meditation or walking meditation, or in just simply observing yourself while, while you're doing things in the world. It's, there's, there's a little bit of analysis and thinking involved. But most of it is just observing. Most of it is just looking. It's like looking for the purple elephant. You know, you you don't sit in here and determine whether there's a purple elephant on this property by thinking about it. You go and look. And in the process, that's really all you do is you keep walking around and looking. The thinking helps you to decide where to look next. And the thinking helps you decide when you've looked long enough in one place and it's time to look somewhere else. But it's mainly a process of looking. So you start looking at the nature of your conscious experience and you find that every time it arises, it always has some content to it. As a matter of fact, you're sitting there in meditation and uh, sometimes you might have this experience of of thinking, you know, uh, when can this all stop? There's always something there. And there is. There's always something there. It's, uh, and you'll come to the conclusion that, okay, consciousness too seems to be impermanent to rise and pass away. They come in many different forms. And the form that it comes in is dependent upon the object. Consciousness is not only temporary, but it is dependent. Eye consciousness arises when a visual object appears. And it disappears when there are no visual objects. And so you recognize that at least the sort of consciousness that makes up our ordinary experience and that we can validate through investigation uh, does not have a, any kind of a self-nature to it. So, what you, are, what you discover through this process of learning and what you can become very satisfied with through the direct investigation 
is that self as a concept is, is real. And self as something functional in the world is real. But it is, it, it is not, it does not have that kind of permanent, persistent, constant, unchanging, unvarying, always present reality that we would like to attribute to a sense of self. This, uh, this understanding that comes through continued observation, what you want to do is you want to keep satisfying yourself over and over again that indeed there's no self in this, and there's no self in that. And when you're sitting and meditating, uh, bring that, keep reinforcing that awareness. At some point in your meditation practice, it's going to come together. It's going to come together with other factors that you observe, and you're going to experience a realization that there is no self other than this construct, and that will be both frightening and liberating at the same time. It will be frightening because the mind doesn't know how to deal with this. The mind creates the self and creates the world perpetually over and over again in every moment. And the mind will feel will feel will experience a sense of uh, instability and loss and uh, being without a stable ground that it's used to because an essential component of the way it established reality is no longer there. But the other thing that the mind will experience is that without that artificial construct which creates a separation, there is a very, there is indeed a liberation. There is no longer, there is no longer a a dynamic between that which is not self and that which is self upon which the health and well-being and pleasure and pain and everything else of the perceived self depends. There's nothing else, there's no longer anything there that has to be constantly guarded and protected. And, you know, as long as there's something else, there's a kind of danger to the self, right? No longer has to be guarded and protected, cherished and looked after. And it's very liberating. There's nothing to be uh, gained or lost or, or uh, injured or rewarded. And in that moment, it would be a very 
it would be a very deep and profound realization of the truth of not self, and that that's what you that's what will help carry you to a moment of profound realization of the true nature of reality. What is what is the true nature of things? Um, if there is no self, well, another there is another side to uh, this no self too, which, with any luck, will also be developing in uh, uh, an understanding of it developing in, in your mind at the same time, which is that all of those things of which uh, not what is not self, what is other than self, consists of. And discover in the same way that they are also projections of the mind. That their reality is also only relative. I mean, they obviously uh, we're not denying the relative reality of physical objects and other people. And this is the this is the uh, arena in which the self functions is that there are other objects which can be uh, interacted with and there are other people. But if your investigation have proceeded in a really good way, together with everywhere you look you discover there is no self, at the same time you will realize everywhere you look you're only finding the projections of your own mind, and the, the so that you're not coming to a point of having lost yourself. If you lost yourself and everything else seems to retain its substantial reality, uh, that would be more disturbing to the mind than if you realize that. It's the, the the entire thing is uh, is a is a creation. The other side, that so that's the other side, the emptiness of objects as well as the emptiness of self. Now, the profound realization, the one that is truly liberating, doesn't just give you a liberating feeling, that sense of relief, is what. What is the nature of reality if it is not this projection of self and world? And uh, that's the that is the experience. That's the experience of nirvana. That's the direct experience of the emptiness of self and world. And that is what, having known that, the mind no longer has the need to cling in the same way to the sense of self and the perception of self and the constructions of self. Because we are human beings and bodies in order to continue to live and exist, our mind will have to go back to creating projections, including a projection of self and a projection of the world so that we can act and and interact and do the things that are necessary. But having seen the reality, the truth that lies beyond 
this mind-created illusion, we no longer have to believe in it and therefore be subject to the, uh, the desires and the fears that, and the, uh, well, really the desires and the fears that it generates. So the process, so th- this is the this is the not self that you're looking for, and the process of looking for not self is really the process of looking for self and not finding it. And every time you think you have found the self, that's wonderful. So whenever you think you found the self, then this is what you you need to continue to investigate this. And uh, so none of this, absolutely not a word of what I've said, is to be accepted on faith. It's a challenge. Look at these things yourself continuously in sitting meditation, in walking meditation, in daily life, just looking to see, is, is, is this self? Is there self in this? Is there a self-nature? It might be helpful to keep in mind that essentially all of the things that you're going to find are going to be constructs that divide underlying reality into these two parts of self and non-self. And so what happens whenever you look at something that you think might be self and you discover it's non-self, then what you do is you take it out of the compartment called self and you move it over to the other compartment called non-self or not-self. So you're not really losing anything except the illusion of the boundary that separated them. All of the things that you examine and investigate, the result of your examination and investigation isn't the annihilation of anything. Nothing gets destroyed. You just, you drew the line here, and now you say, oh, that's not right, and so you draw the line in a different place, and it encloses a little smaller area. That's all. So there's absolutely nothing lost in this. Nothing is destroyed, except an illusion. Yes? So, can you give us an example, like uh, whatever example make us um, understand more about what you just told us, the examination and elimination of self. Any daily activities, you know, something, some example? Well, the most important daily activities are the ones where we have the sense of self arising. Um, and so, first of all, to become aware of those. You know, I mean, I, I did give you one example. You feel, somebody says something and you feel slighted and uh, you feel 
insulted. Well, immediately, look at it. Well, we're okay. Where does this come from? Who is feeling this feeling? And why? If I feel I have this feeling, I feel insulted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm getting angry. That's right. I, I'm angry. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but, yeah, if you feel insulted, you might then feel angry or you might feel hurt or other things like that. But look specifically at, not at the, I mean, there's, it's important to look at the anger too, but that's not what we're talking about here. It's important to look at the hurt too, to understand the nature of those. But in terms of understanding the self, we want to look at, see what it was that got insulted that led to the anger, that led to the hurt. Or just any, any circumstance in which you feel uh, you have a sense of, of self. Now, where you're going to find it really, really strongly, and this is, here's a really important place to look for it, is in the doer and the intentions. Do you not feel as though you're the operator? You, you are the one who's in control. I'm the one that's going to decide what to do and what to say. You're sitting in meditation and um, your mind wanders. So, isn't it you that decides to direct your attention back to the meditation object? Well, if it's not me, then who did it? Somebody. Look for, in, look for where does intention come from? And in all of your daily actions. So, a fly lands on your forehead. Okay? And you feel it walking around. And you experience a... Uh, feeling of aversion to having a fly walking around on your forehead. And so you intend to brush the fly away. Where does that intention come from? This should be a fairly easy example. Now, you tell yourself, well, I decided to brush it away, right? But did you really? Didn't you already have a lot of mental formations associated with the idea of flies crawling around on your head? Did, does not that feeling of those little tiny legs landing on your skin, does that not produce a, a, a sensation of unpleasantness? Do you not have a whole history of programming your mind and your body to respond to things like that by removing them? I mean, did you really decide anything or did not something that was already... Didn't something just play itself out the way it was already programmed to, the way it inevitably had to? But then again, you may reflect on this when that fly lands on your head and say, well, I can decide not to. I can decide to let it stay there. Where does that intention come from? 
Is there a self that created it? Or did it not come out of all the complex processes that make up your mind? And once it was there, once it was there, then there was a, the mental processes that gave rise to the original intention to brush away the fly. And now, because, because you've heard this little talk and maybe because you've thought about it, comes the idea, seemingly out of nowhere, you don't remember constructing it, it just came and it said, okay, well, what if I don't brush the fly off my head? So you're in this little space of balance in between where there's the, yeah, but I don't like the feeling of it walking around on my head and flies are dirty and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but if, yeah, you know, if I'm going to prove to myself that I exist, then I have to not brush the fly off my head. And, and one of those two will win. Uh, or maybe they'll just struggle with each other until the fly leaves by himself. <laughs> but look in there and see if you can find the self that's creating those intentions. Or is it just consciousness watching the whole thing unfold? And so involved in, in the movie that it's really easy to say, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that, taking the credit for it. We're all the time taking credit for things that uh, when we give it even just a little bit of attention, we realize that, well, you know, that's, there was no I, there was no self determining that action. That action just, it happened as a result of causes and conditions. So this is a really good, this is a really important place to investigate and discover whether, whether there's a self there or not, whether there's an I, and satisfy yourself. Intentions. Um, are there, uh, are there orderly categories you can point to and uh, would be good to sort your search into? I mean, there are some obvious ones like maybe intentions or, or like your, I don't know, maybe you'd say feelings or attitudes, but is there a, a system of categorizing things so that you can do your search more in a more orderly way. Well, actually, that that is what the uh, what the five aggregates. Uh, th- that's a function of the five aggregates. Aggregates, uh, sensations, uh, feelings, perceptions, uh, mental objects, which is a very big category. And within mental objects, we are, or it's called sankaras. And within the category of sankharas that we usually uh, translate as uh, mental formations, there are concepts and ideas and volitional formations. This is where intention is. So you look in that category for the volitional formations. And there are emotions like uh, uh, anger, uh, sadness, uh, fear, and so forth. So... um, that, that is the systematic categorization, is to explore within the five aggregates. And that was the purpose, as a teaching tool, and as a practice tool, the purpose that the five aggregates was presented for. You know, the Buddha said, when I say individual, 
I mean the five aggregates. And that this is, this is all that the individual consists of. And then he presented these five. But um, I don't know if we can refer to any single sutra reference for cat- breaking the mental formations down into categories. It probably exists, and, and I don't know about it. But uh, the, the mental formations, the obvious ones are the intentions or volitional formations, which we just talked about, and the emotions or mental states. And then there's all the concepts and ideas and memories. Um, and, and imagination. We have to include imagination in there as well. So those would be those would be the major ones. Uh, keep in mind when we also just to clarify in the category of feelings or vedna there are uh, pleasant feelings. There are two kinds. There are physical pleasant pleasant feelings of physical origin, the, the pleasantness associated with the senses and pleasantness that arises, that's of mental origin, that arises in the mind. And likewise with pain, physical and mental. So in, in, in doing your investigation, that's the category where you find both mental and, and, and physical pain and pleasure. Yes, question? I was just going to, um, it sounds like consciousness you were defining as just sort of various sensations um, what about the mind, and how do you define that? The mind, is that the mind encompasses all of these things. The the, uh, the the mental part of uh, of uh, the five uh, skandhas is the four consisting of consciousness, perceptions, feelings, and mental formations, and uh, this. This use, the usage of the words mind and consciousness has been very, very inconsistent in Buddhist literature and all the different traditions. So um, this can be, this is something that can be quite confusing when you're reading things. Um, I would suggest that you distinguish clearly between the mind as a complex of different processes which can be either conscious or unconscious. And consciousness itself as that of which there is that immediate subjective cognizing of something. There is something else that is even more poorly defined and not very clearly described at all. And that is that um, you you can have sensations that register in your mind that you are not conscious of. And we don't really have a good good language to describe that. But um, you can be how would we say, subconsciously aware of things, but you're not consciously aware of them. 
And so we need to make this distinction too. So there are mental processes that are subconscious, and there are even sensations that are subconscious, and there are mental formations and ideas and intentions that uh, are subconscious. What you're consciously aware of is just a small part of the contents and activity of the mind, and even only a small part of sensation. Um, In any given moment, if you direct your awareness to your leg, there's all kinds of sensations there. If you direct your awareness to hearing, there are many different sounds. But you won't be aware of all of those at one time. As a matter of fact, most of the sensations that you're experiencing experiencing in any given moment, you're not conscious of. But they are still registering within your mind in some sense. Because if one of those sensations is something unusual, an unconscious process of your mind will cause it to become conscious. So even though you're not conscious of it, that it, it's still it's still making, it's still registering, it's still making an imprint, there's still a kind of awareness. And most of it never becomes conscious. But the fact that some of it can and some of it does demonstrates to us and makes us really clear that, that there are these unconscious awarenesses and these unconscious mental processes taking place. So mind, when we say mind, it has to encompass all of that. I don't know how we can speak meaningfully of mind and just you know, speak a, 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 and make it a synonym for consciousness because that's not, that's not very realistic. It doesn't correspond to our actual experience very well. Do you, do you have to be able to verbalize it to become conscious of something though? Well, what would your answer to that be? Do you have to be able to verbalize something to be conscious of it? I don't know. I think I think I do. I mean, I don't, to be conscious of how many stairs going up, you know. Well, there are some things. I, 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 let me just point out a few things to you, okay? It is true that we are so used to continually verbalizing the contents of our consciousness that it may at first appear that the the verbalizing and consciousness are the same. But if you look closely, and especially in meditation, uh, you can be aware of all kinds of things that are not being verbalized. Thoughts are being verbalized. You can observe the sensations of the breath without there being any verbalization associated with that. Uh, As your mind calms down, you'll be aware that you have thought processes taking place you're actually having thoughts about your mental state, having thoughts about the quality of your concentration or the quality of your awareness. But these words are not in, or these thoughts are not in words. They're nonverbal thoughts. And you'll have uh, intentions arise to change the mode of your med- meditation or to uh, make a shift in intention and things like that which will be nonverbal. So you can, when you, when you look at it a little more closely, you can see that there's all sorts of conscious uh, awareness, thought processes, and intentions 
that are nonverbal. So verbalization, although it, it tends to predominate so much of our mental activity, is not an absolute and essential part of it. Okay, it's just it's just an aspect, and it can be completely removed. And you can, uh, and this will happen as your concentration deepens in meditation. Is uh, basically all verbalization will cease to take place. And you'll think, you know, you'll still have thoughts, but and you'll be thinking in concepts, but but not in, uh, but not verbalized concepts. Unless it's the Mahasi style. <laughs> Unless it's the Mahasi style. Well, even even in the Mahasi style, at some point, your mind is sharp and clear and moving quickly enough that the meditation teacher will say, "Don't try to note everything. Notice everything, but note note only so often." the distinction between noticing and noting. And that has to happen, because you see, there's really three different processes here. There is consciousness of the sensation, there is the recognition of it, and then there is the verbal label of it. And all three are three big steps that the mind has to go through. And as the mind speeds up and as the noticing takes place more quickly, You've got to drop that last one. It's just too big and awkward and clumsy, so you let the words go at that point. And you continue to notice, but not to note. But um, uh, there was something else that I was going to address that you said, the verbal... uh, Oh, it's not what you said that I I thought might come into your mind, I just mentioned to it. One One thing that is very closely associated with consciousness is memory. Right, and uh, those things that we're not conscious of, we don't seem to have memory of. But those things that we are conscious of, we tend to remember and we can recall. I mean, it doesn't mean that we can't uh, forget them, and we do forget them. But we will have what you are conscious of; you will have recollection of, and things that you're unconscious of, uh, you are not really, you're very unlikely to have recollection of. Although in the case of hypnosis and things like that, we find that people can recall things that they weren't conscious of. Which goes back to what I was saying before, there's, there's a lot of sensory awareness that that makes its imprint on the mind and perhaps even can be remembered in such a way that only only a hypnotist can cause you to recall it. Whereas... Uh, you weren't conscious of it at the time, and therefore later on, somebody says, "Did you see such and such?" And no, I didn't see it. Then in hypnosis, they ask you, "Did you? What did you see?" And you describe exactly what you said that you couldn't see. So that's just an illustration of that other thing that uh, uh, that things register on the mind without being conscious. But there's this there's a very strong connection between. Nevertheless, very strong connection between consciousness and memory. The more conscious we are of something, then the more clearly we remember it. So, but even there, we have to have to wonder uh, how strongly, how how absolutely necessary is that connection. And I suggest that those that even memory is a separate process than consciousness and. Uh, you can have 
uh, as the example I gave you, you can have memory without having been conscious of the event. And it may well be that you can be conscious without subsequently having any memory of being conscious too. So. So in terms of the mind, consciousness, memory, awareness, there are a lot of a lot of different things here. So when we go to sleep, can you tell us where our mind going and doing? And when we go to sleep, our brain shut down, right? So like if a person. Before this person goes to sleep, he listens to the Dharma talk. Mm-hmm. And then he falls in sleep. Mm-hmm. And the Dharma talk continues. Will subconsciously pick up all the teaching <laughs> while this person sleeps? <laughs> um, that's something that's actually been researched, if there is such a thing as sleep learning. And the results are that there's not. No? <laughs> there's not. When you are truly asleep, your brain doesn't stop working, but certain parts of your brain stop working. And um, when you are truly asleep, uh, the parts of your brain that would take the sounds from the from the headphones of the Dharma talk and then decipher those sounds in terms of meaning and then store and integrate that meaning with your understanding that sequence of events doesn't take place anymore. So, but there is there is a kind of uh, consciousness or awareness that persists in sleep, and so even though I mean that's uh, uh, e- even though we can't remember anything that happened while we were asleep, or mostly we can't most of the time. Uh, that that doesn't mean that there was no consciousness at all. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, if you reflect on it, you may notice that you do, even though you can't remember being uh, any events or content or anything like that, you do have a sense of a continuity of awareness when you when during your sleep. Do you not? In the deepest stages of sleep, you might, you might, and if you're abruptly awakened from that, you might not have that sense of that. But there's many stages of sleep that you're not completely unconscious, and you actually there's a residual aware of awareness of it, and awareness of passage of time and so forth. I think we've gone beyond the topic of. Uh, um, not-self and the practices for realizing not-self. But that's all right. It is, as, you do, as, as you discover in Buddhist practice, everything comes down to mind, and that's what we're talking about. And so that means that you have to discover much more about the mind than maybe you're used to realizing that that was important. Because your mind is creating your reality constantly, continuously. And it is this mind-created reality that has the characteristics of suffering and dissatisfactoriness. (laughs) 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 
当我了解无常之后呢，有一段时间我在练习金行的时候，我是把自己当一个死人。你翻译一下。When I practice,、uh, when I understand the impermanent, and when a、uh, period of time when I do the walking meditation, I just pretend I'm a dead person. Yeah, 一个活着的死人。Yeah, a life of dead person. 那我。只有当下的觉受，但是呢，不会对他有想象哈，跟的出没有没有想象，就是说只有单纯的觉觉受，而没有对他起任何的想象这样。I want myself uh only pure sensation, do not have any add on on any imagination about the sensation. I practice that. 我觉得这好像跟无我是蛮相像的。And and I feel this is、uh, similar like a no self is that right? Yeah, once, is it that right? I believe it probably is. I I, I think it might very well be a, a way of of experiencing no self. Yes, I could based on that. I would make a suggestion that、uh, something that you could that any of you could do is when you're doing walking meditation. Think of yourself as just that—that that I am just the a witness from another planet, and、uh, I'm witnessing the inner functioning of a very sophisticated robot, highly programmed, sophisticated robot, and I'm just watching it do its thing. <laughs> yeah. So that—that's.、Uh, <laughs> That's my way to practice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I hope that、uh, I hope that satisfied your uh, uh, needs, Scott. Yes, it's very very good. Good.、Right. But I I wanted to actually、uh, have something that calls、uh, the、uh, no self related to emptiness. Maybe later on, if you have time, you can kind of touch on that. Okay. Yes, that that's a very important topic. Yeah, and、uh, so we'll talk about that. Because see, in the Buddha's original teaching, what he what he emphasized、uh, in directing people was to become aware, to realize no self, and then.、Uh, After after he passed, subsequent Buddhists looked at that and、uh, more and more closely and realized that, well, the same thing is true of everything else. Just as the self is empty of any kind of substantial existence of its own and it's just a projection of the mind, so is everything else. And so the concept of emptiness, which is actually which the Buddha actually did teach, but he didn't speak that much about, there is. Clearest expression of it is、uh, one sutra. It's called the the Chula Sanyata Sutta. It's the which is the the, uh, the uh, smaller uh, emptiness sutra is what that actually means in Pali.、Uh, and there's a, there are a few、uh, other references to emptiness in the in the sutras, but he didn't really develop it as fully and present it as later. Uh, Buddhist masters did, uh, and uh, but it's exactly the same thing. Is that 
the and, and there's it's emptiness, and there's the emptiness of the self, and then there's the emptiness of phenomena, and they are exactly parallel in every way to each other. So yeah, we can talk about that sometime. Yeah. Might have to be next retreat though. Right? <laughs> okay, well. Time for lunch, past time for lunch. And so we'll talk again this evening and I'll do a guided meditation at 2.30.